Hello and welcome to Motorsport Now. My name is Jade Paverley and today's guest is Emma Bearpark. Emma has a number of titles but we've settled on Motorsport Marketing and PR. She's got a vast range of experiences, not just from motorsport, but her career really started actually, which we will talk about, in fashion, which is really interesting because she really got a different side of PR and marketing communications before she got into the motorsport world. Um, but I really have so much time for Emma. She's got so much to offer and she does such a brilliant job at what she does. It's very timely that I'm releasing this podcast when I am, although we did actually record this a few weeks ago in mid-June, so do um, just take that into context when you're listening to some of the topics that we discuss. Um, but Emma actually um, was my PR um, when I was driving for Mazda at Goodwood when I was 19. Um, she did an absolutely fantastic job with me. I mean, I was a bit like rabbit in headlights and she just really took me under her wing and you know got me interviews, introduced me to Jensen Button and um, drove me back from the ball, I remember. <laughs> so she was absolutely fantastic and said, I've got so much time for, for her. And this just gives you, again, another perspective into the motorsport world that maybe you don't see day to day. Um, Obviously, people like Emma make things turn over within the sport. Um, and if you're looking to potentially get into PR marketing, this is, without blowing my own trumpet, um, a great podcast to listen to. She's had experiences in World Endurance Championship, Formula E, Formula One. And even if you're not into that side of things, it's just really interesting to hear about that side. So without a further ado, here is Emma. Hi, Jade. My name's Emma Bearpark. Hi Emma, thank you so much for coming on. So I want to give the listeners something a little bit different to um, kind of think about within motorsport, the PR side, and that's your your baby. You didn't start off in motorsport though, you started off in a, in a different industry, music and fashion I think. I did. Um, what I found um, with the background for motorsport is a lot of people who want to get into the marketing side um, don't actually start directly in motorsport. And that's probably because there are so many sponsors and a good way of getting into motorsport, because if you think about it, there are so few jobs in marketing in motorsport. The um, sort of higher up the pinnacle you go, the fewer teams there are and therefore the fewer marketing opportunities. So if say Formula One or the World Endurance Championship or IndyCar uh, going across the globe and being PC um, is your goal, then obviously there are fewer jobs. And um, I was actually working at an agency, a PR and marketing agency in London. And I was um, on the consumer side rather than the business side. And I was looking after hotel openings, um, some educational um, governmental online portals uh, and music. And that was uh, MasterCard's sponsorship of the Brit and the Mobo Awards. And it was just one year, MasterCard had already had an association um, with Jordan Grand Prix F1. And um, we dabbled with taking a few guests from the music side along to the British Grand Prix as part of a hospitality package. But then um, the agency that I was at actually won um, a standalone uh, 
sponsor opportunity with Jordan Grand Prix as well. Um, and that was um, a company that made uh, voice recognition software, etc., called Demovo. And so we had the opportunity to sponsorship leverage to, to, to really PR the sponsorship thereof, of um, their involvement with Jordan. But nobody in my department really enjoyed F1 or understood it. And I wasn't fanatical, but I was a fan. And I was one of the very proud um, Brits who had a lump in her throat when Damon Hill crossed the line in the Williams as well. Um, so I leapt up and said, well, look, if nobody wants to give this a go, I kind of know um, Mark Gallagher at the Jordan team because at the time he was head of marketing because of the MasterCard Association. And if this was going to be a step into sport, that was great. Um, because um, at the time, it, yeah, it was, it was mainly fashion and, con uh, uh, sorry, it was um, uh, my music and uh, other consumer PR. So I got to know the Jordan Grand Prix team quite well. And that was really lovely. Only attended the British Grand Prix and then arranged for some events for the sponsor outside um, of Grand Prix weekends, some of the sponsor days and the commitments that drivers and teams have to sponsors who pay for their time and money on the car. And that's when I got to meet Takuma Sato. And that was our first working uh, relationship together, which still goes to this day. Excellent. It's a very kind of like long career, not to put a date on it, but you've had quite a long career within motorsport now. And oh gosh, yeah, please put a date on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so my first, oh yeah, no, I celebrated my 50th this year. I'm very proud, uh, proud of that. Do um, not look it at all. I can't believe it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, motorsport's great for the skin. There you go. All those things are great. That's so much because then I, you know, latterly I've been in Formula E, so yes, but that's a different yeah. story. Um, so, um, yes, so 2002 was my first foray into motorsport, and it was with Formula One. So, I leapfrogged really the other formulae uh, going in via maybe a small local team, going via karting right up. Um, I absolutely leapfrogged it all purely because I'd worked with a sponsor, um, and to in a roundabout way, then answer your question. Uh, a job came up at BAR Honda and I applied because the agency that I was at was folding sadly um, and the company was disbanding in London and so I thought well I'll just give it a go and because of my experience I'd had with a sponsor of a Formula One team I got a job at BAR Honda uh, as it was uh, in Brackley uh, in the communications department. So you did a few years in Formula One, which must have been quite intense. Did you find the experience that you had previously was quite, you know, put in good stead for the Formula One work? Kind of what did it entail that, what kind of was your day-to-day -day with them? What did you have to do? Yeah, very much so. Um, so um, I did have a stint in fashion in-house straight after university. I'd actually worked in-house um, at a fashion company and I was doing the training to all the people of um, you know what the fabrics everything um, consisted of but also I was um, basically logistically running all of our fashion events so our trade events British Fashion Week etc so having that organization really really helped because I thought I'd, I'd, I'm not quite sure what everybody 
outside of motorsport thinks that sometimes the logistics of the marketing side of a motorsport event entails. Um, obviously, it's all about the drivers and the cars and the on-track action and the results of an hour or six hours if we're in endurance or 24 hours, and that's the end goal. But there's a lot of organisation before it, um, organising schedules. So from the PR and marketing side, as you'll know, Jade, um, there's lots of interviews. Um, there are people to slot in and out of um, the time that you're given, which is quite a small amount of time because the drivers spend most of the time with their engineers, especially the higher up uh, the pinnacle that you go in any sport. Um, they spend more time with the physios or more time with their engineers, more time strategizing um, and less and less time. You have to really use your time well when you get that time with the drivers. So, you know, it's liaising with media. Um, and in my time, it's gone from purely traditional media of print media, some over the phone who couldn't make it to races, or maybe they're doing a preview. So you have to try and arrange before a race weekend and get hold of the driver wherever he is in the world. He might be off on a PR um, event or he might be at home. Um, but then there's also the schedule for a weekend. And of course, nowadays, you don't just have the TV um, and the print media, but we've got the digital, we have the wonderful podcasts like yourself to fit in, you've got radio, it might be that it's streaming. So there's all different avenues now that you have to think of and prioritize. And whereas the priority, um, you know, back when I started might have been the big broadsheet newspapers for the biggest amount of coverage. Nowadays, it could be a podcast listened to by millions of people globally so it's understanding now each of the mediums that are out there they might have a social account and it might be that you know it's a PR that's running their social account and you have to make sure they've got everything you know all the facts they need for any contentious issues um, it might be a driver themselves running their own account and whilst it is their own account you know it, it does reflect on the team or it might sponsors might have a say on it so it, it's a much bigger beastie uh, being in PR and, and, and marketing now than it was when I started. And um, I think having an organisational brain, you know, being logistic, having my events background really helped and being right at the start of Twitter, Instagram and everything. And as it grew, I had to grow with it and um, organically um, learned a few little tips and tricks rather than having to paper click and all that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, so I think if you are organized, you have a, a quite a compartmentalized brain. You're not just in it for the fanhood to stand in a garage and try and have your photo taken. Um, that, you know, you understand you're behind the scenes, you're there to make sure everything runs smoothly. And if you're not shouted at at the weekend and the driver's in the right place at the right time, you've done a good job. Well, that leads very nicely on to what has been your highlight of your career so far. Have you had a particular weekend where in either World Endurance Championship or in Formula One, you just thought, right, that was a great weekend. I'm really lucky to be here and be doing what I'm doing. I have been very lucky. I have worked with a lot of young drivers who've gone on to you know, relatives and very good success. Alexander Rossi, um, uh, being one of them in IndyCar and IP 
Yard in when he was over in England, and um, uh, Wayne Boyd, who is now with United Sports Cars, um, the lovely Northern Irish guy. He's so such a lovely guy, and I'm so proud of him for doing so well. And um, so there've been a lot of of young drivers, Harrison Scott, but um, for me, I've, I've got to say it's it's working with Takuma. Um, yeah, I worked with Jensen. I worked for Jensen um, for a little bit as well privately. And, you know, he's amazing. But I still have a relationship with Takuma that when he came over from America last July and was asked by Honda to drive Ayrton's 1988 um, uh, car up the hill um, and he had uh, nobody over here because he hasn't got a PR team per se anymore. It's, it's um, his uh, team in the States. Um, it was great to see him. He just said, you know, could you come be with me? And Hiro Matsumoto, who's his photographer and best friend. And we all stayed together in the same hotel. And that last July that weekend was very special because I could bring my daughter and my daughter had only met Takuma when she was a tiny baby and because he'd been in the States I'd gone over and I'd seen him in IndyCar I went to the Indy 500 but I hadn't taken her because of schooling and and it's a long weekend for such a tiny person um but now she was a bit older I was completely pushed out the way and Baku was asking her to give him the pens for autographs and for this that and the other and I was like well wow. <laughs> he gave her one of his driver shirts because she's the same size as Taku now and she managed to get one of his driver um, IndyCar shirts I was like this isn't fair but it was such a good memory but going back, um, I think it was in Formula One when Super Aguri F1 team, um, when I first met your father and I started working with the Paveleys, which was was wonderful. We had an awesome, awesome time. And uh, we were in Canada and we got our first points in Formula One. And we were the little minnows. We literally behind the scenes, the car was put together with everything we could gather from Minardi through to Arrows, through to all the bits and bobs. And the 60 people when you think about the size of a Formula One team now, and, and we had 60 full-time people, 120 including contractors, uh, what we achieved in six months to get that car. I say we, I didn't touch the car, but you know, I was PR, I was also account manager, I was also looking after the drivers. Uh, that was a huge moment. But I also loved working in Grand Am, which then went to IMSA IMSA, with the Starworks Motorsport team over in America. I've done four years working with Peter Barron with a fantastic um, array of drivers. Um, Ryan Dalil, um, the Scots guy who is so funny and still racing in the States. I worked with Brendan Hartley for the first time when he was over there and that's how I got to meet Brendan. And of course he was fantastic in race cars after his uh, toe was dipped with with Red Bull in Formula One. Uh, Sam Bird, it was the first time I'd met Sam and then we were to re-meet in Formula E. And I've got amazing memories in Formula E. I've got standout weekends and I've got weekends that were really tough. And as a PR, sometimes you have to deal with either political or health issues, could be with a driver, could be with a team member, that behind the scenes you have to deal with with discretion and professionalism. Uh, sometimes you don't want the media to know, sometimes you do. So it's really hard for me to pick out one, 
but I think from a personal point of view, it was it was last Goodwood with my daughter and Takuma and Anton Senna's car. I mean, that was the atmosphere was phenomenal. Your passion really shows through with everything you've done, which is, I think, one of your best assets, isn't it? Obviously, you're ridiculously organised and you're, you're very determined. You get the job done, which is brilliant. What kind of hints and tips could you pass on to someone else looking to get into your kind of role? Because you're amazing with like company names, people's names, recognising, you know, I know it sounds small, but obviously it goes a long way with what you do. Um, what would you pass on any advice to anyone coming into it? I would say, especially now, we're in a very difficult time. And I notice on Twitter and Instagram and uh, with blogs and vlogs, there are a lot of, of uh, very passionate motorsport enthusiasts who would love to get trackside um, and write firsthand. But there aren't enough jobs. There really aren't. But if you want to work for a team uh, at any level, I would say write in, do some work experience. And I wouldn't just say I've got my heart set on Formula One or the World Endurance Championship or IndyCar. I've had some of my best times with teams and young drivers from Formula Ford, um, you know, um, Euro Cup. I've had great times. I've had great times at IMSA um, in America or the Mazda, you know, support series. Um, it's about camaraderie. And I think if not lower your expectations because that's not that's actually being doing grassroots racing a disservice um go to a local kart track see if you can help out go to your local um track so in england obviously we've got thruxton we've got alton park we've got all sorts of tracks um that might not see um formula one but they have fantastic racing if two wheels is your thing approach local teams, approach local drivers, uh, local tracks, and see if you can actually get your foot in the door working for a circuit, because you will learn how it works, the operational side. And if you can get some work there, or even, uh, uh, you know, go the journalistic route. Um, uh, quite a few journalists have turned to be fantastic PRs because they know both sides of um, of the coin. Um, conversely, some have not liked the PR side because you sometimes lose your freedom of speech because obviously you have to toe the company line um, and please everybody from sponsors to drivers to the actual team. So I would say don't give up. It took me 10 years of working in PR to get to motorsport. So it's not something that necessarily always comes quickly. But when it does, it's really, really worthwhile. And put your finger in a lot of pies. I have never just worked in motorsport. I've always had a side part-time job. And thank goodness right now during this uh, COVID-19 situation, all my freelance work dried up. And I was working um, a bit with Robo Race. I was working with um, Formula E teams and individual drivers. And that obviously has dried up like so many people um, across, not just in motorsport, obviously at this time. But I've always kept a part-time job. I've worked at a local PR agency and I've worked with Lego 
and Warner Brothers movies. And I saw that. That's really cool. Uh, d- yeah. Just so fun. Just so fun. Because I wanted to keep my technique and my learning. I've never stopped wanting to learn. Mm. Um, and as digital platforms become more important, um, you can't underestimate the fact that motorsport is repetitive. And a lot of people will tweet, eat, race, you know, sleep, repeat eat, race, sleep, repeat. Mm. That's very easy to fall into that. Um, You just think it's the same every weekend. You just think it's a schedule you have to write and you just go into autopilot. But things can happen. Accidents can happen. Uh, Events can be cancelled. Political situations can happen in the country that you're going to. So I I always want to refresh um, my training and what I know from a global, from, from just a global PR perspective and what's new in my discipline of PR and communications. And whilst motorsport is just one part of it, I think it's very important to know the broader skills. Mm-hmm. And so at the moment I work part-time actually um, in the education sector and I work for a company who manufactures from the UK, from the Cotswolds where, where we are, um, and we distribute from a wonderful great big cow shed uh, in <laughs> Oxfordshire, um, molecular models, planetarium, electric planetarium, orieries, um, bird scaring kites, all sorts of things. And I do sales and marketing for them on a part-time basis. Um, and we are still open. Um, companies are still sending out from universities are still sending out kits for home learning. So touch wood, I'm at home, I'm remote working, I'm dealing with the customers, I'm tweeting, I'm Facebooking, I'm doing everything. Facebooking? Is that even a word? I don't know. I'll say that. I don't know. We're not even keeping up our social platforms um, because my freelance, you know, that my bread and butter is still coming in. And yeah. um, so that is another thing I would advise if your path into F1 is, or I'm sorry, into motorsport, <laughs> um, if your path into any motorsport um, is contract or freelance, keep a part-time permanent something or freelance in another sector on the go as well because you never know when a team might have to downsize or events might get cancelled for some reason or a sponsor suddenly walks away Um, just have something you know and a lot of people have permanent jobs and um, work in motorsport as well as we all know so um that would be another bit of advice yeah it's very good advice as well and you're keeping all your skill sets as you said very balanced just to touch on something you you said before obviously you've worked with so many drivers when I was speaking to Paul Moynihan he said there's a different kind of there's a different language you have to speak with different drivers you have to take different approaches and keeping them calm is a real big thing because obviously they're always so kind of hyped up after driving um do you have to really change your approach with each kind of team and or I know it's probably quite an obvious thing, but do you feel like you've had to mould yourself around the team or do you try and stick to certain kind of routines with people with how you deal with things? Drivers are very different beasties. Um, For a mindset to get in the zone and um, to be prepared to get into a machine that goes that fast, you have to pick your moments and sometimes you have to pick your fights. Um, and, um, 
I have been, like you said, incredibly fortunate to work from a different age range and different types of racing, um, including two wheels as well when I worked at Silverstone. Um, and I think it's just having an understanding that people are different. Now that is just like you said, a fundamental human factor. People are different. We're all different and variety is the spice of life. Some drivers, um, might regard marketing as a chore and you are nothing more than a fly to be swatted because I'm here to race. But then it's up to you to ingratiate yourself. Okay, some people might be a little rude. I am very lucky, I have hardly ever, I mean, I, I, gosh, one driver I can think of who in my whole career just wasn't particularly a pleasant as a person but that was known across the industry but by and large if you are sympathetic you understand you explain why to the driver they're doing this you've already prepared you've maybe given them a couple of questions in advance you if you tell them this is going to take five minutes and it takes half an hour of course you're going to annoy them you know, because they are expecting a schedule as well. Um, and I think, you know, you also have to realise that they are people with personal lives as well. And as well as um, the higher up the echelon they go, the more public persona they are. Um, yes, that might affect their personality slightly, but also their, you know, they have personal lives they have to juggle as well. So sometimes you have to become a personal PA and they have to be able to trust you not to gossip not to talk about or not to sell the story um, and to help shield some things that's either desperately private um, or you know it's just nobody's business um, or if some if, if a driver has become ill uh, twice in in my career a driver has become very poorly it's been unsure whether they've been able to get in a car um, they have got in a car for qualifying. Um, you're really not sure if they're going to make it for the race. And you have to juggle the media coming in. They might be a championship contender. And you're also back and forth to the medical center. And so it's having an empathy for the human side. But it's also realizing that you are dealing with lots of different temperaments. And I think if you if you don't have broad shoulders and you you take things quite personally, mm -hmm. um, you are going to find it a little bit tough. It's a high pressure environment, like any sport that involves a lot of money. Sometimes words are short. They're said in haste because it's pressurized environment. And sometimes you have to realize that wasn't directed at me because of me. It was directed because of the pressures that person is under. Um, and, yeah, so broad shoulders for sure. Um, and um, I think just, just being a people person really helps. That's really invaluable. That's definitely something I think obviously, the as time goes on, you've collected all this. And uh, yeah, I think not being too sensitive is a very good point. With everything that you've done, would you recommend to your daughter to get in the same avenue of work? Because Sophie's... 10 no she, so she's got a while but she is 10 and she has been to the british grand prix when she was four months old and cuddled <laughs> by jensen and he was playing with her feet and his lovely father 
Um, she has sat in Sam Bird's Formula E Virgin car. She has been with Takuma and was the only one allowed near Ayrton's car at Goodwood. Um, and she takes it all in her stride. I mean, even her father, who's in motorsport, gets quite jealous of some of the opportunities Sophie's had um, at such a young age. But her passion at the moment is singing and acting, not because of any TV programs, reality TV programs or anything. She has a wonderful stage presence. She's always loved doing plays and singing and she's um, attending a part-time, uh, very famous, I don't know if I can say brand names on here, can I do? There's, um, uh, oh, great. So Stagecoach is oh, a yeah. worldwide theatrical or performing arts. They do an hour of singing, an hour of dancing, and an hour of acting. And she goes um, on a Friday after school and it's her little um, creative release and she loves it. And she got the lead, she shared uh, the lead role of Legally Blonde Junior Musical last year. Um, she was the youngest ever to be chosen to do it for her little theatre school and she absolutely smashed it. So, and she knows that the theatre world is also really tough. She's seen all the theatres closed at the moment. Her auntie um, is actually, um, uh, she's resting at the moment, but she was Maria in The Sound of Music. She was in Wicked. Um, yeah, her dad's sister. So hugely talented family on her father's side. Not so much with me. Um, and um, so I think she's very creative. Um, I don't know if she'd go the motorsport route. I think because myself and her dad are both in motorsport, possibly not. That might just, it might be too much for her, but we're just letting her do, do whatever she wants. And, you know, I think the fact that her, his, her dad's successful at what he does, I've been successful and I'm, you know, happy with where I'm at. And, um, we're just letting her do what she wants to do. Um, I think she, she has seen that if you put your mind to something and you really work hard, there is a possibility. I'm not gonna be like everyone out there and say, you will get your dream. Because in motorsport, um, as, as, as every young driver and every young uh, you know, aspiring journalist or PR knows, it's very difficult. There are very few jobs, there are very few race seats and you need a lot of money. Um, so you don't always achieve your dream if that is your dream, but you can work in it, you can work around it. And certainly at least, you know, you've given it your best shot and we're just letting her do whatever she wants to do. Yeah. You're definitely not a, a motorsport mum, competitive dad. You must've seen a few of those over your time. <laughs> he, did, he did try and get her into karting. He did say, does she want to go karting? And um, she was like, no, I want to do ballet. When she was like four <laughs> or five. And it was like, want... don't, don't push her to get into a cart. And she came to sort of the Dan Weldon, um, when, when there was the Dan Weldon karting memorial you know, foundation cart race and things and her dad participated many years ago now um I think it was the standing round in the cold you know I'm, yeah, I'm not could too easily put anyone off to be fair <laughs> I think at that age she was much more into her Disney princesses than she was her carts her cart track overalls um so yeah so we may have phew just uh just uh, got away with not having to fund that part of uh, yeah, lucky escape. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know because all of you guys and and the guys that I've worked with and 
the really dedicated dads and moms and and families who have really supported and i've been very very lucky to have met like you guys some amazing families amazingly supportive and then as a pr been sort of invited into that family for a weekend and and working and you know harrison scott family i i, I absolutely adore his mum and dad and his sister and and you know his sister goes out with another racing driver who i did a little bit of pr only a tiny bit of pr for and now he's doing amazing job in the world endurance championship and um, you feel really proud just to actually know the whole family so yes you get to work with the drivers but you get to meet the passion behind the whole family and that if if that can be amazing because it can be an, an extension of your own that is so nice i'm just jotting that down to add because that is lovely i'm just quite you said there because it's just such a nice thing is there anything else you think's worthwhile adding or communicating to anyone else who again from any kind of point of view yeah i get so many people asking me not so much nowadays because i'm not huge i mean i'm very tough people ask me but i don't seem to be as relevant as maybe some people in formula one and stuff now so it does tend to be old school people who ask me or people who realize my background or you know because formula e it's really funny because formula e um, which we haven't talked about um i think is going to be massive it's it's grown i i worked with andretti in the first year american team who obviously are so well known with Mario and Michael and Marco, especially, and, and obviously John, bless him. But um, the Andretti family are such an institution in the States, but they were coming over basically to do a global FIA run series that they'd never done before. And so I was very, very honored to be asked to assist them because I knew quite a few people from the FIA. There were some FIA people who had moved from F1 into Formula E, some journalists who moved onto Formula E. So it just slotted in really nicely and I worked with them in their first two years. Um, but um, I think with digital, with the fact that Formula E embraced e-racing, embraced fan engagement, whether you like fan boost or not, it still got the fans involved with a race weekend. Vote for this driver, do this, do that. And so an armchair enthusiast was suddenly, um, you know, actually influencing in, in a very small way, um, whether their driver would get that boost in the race or not. And um, all of the on-track activities, um, when I mean on-track, I don't mean actually on the track, sorry, I mean out on-site, the e-village as they call it, has so much for fans to do and little fun fairs, which sometimes are only at um, a few uh, of the larger race, uh, you know, series. So it's very family oriented and I was so surprised even in the first year all of them were at capacity the the families were from tiny children right up because they yes they had you know it was quite funny sometimes they'd have you know cans on their ears uh, ear defenders and then you know it sounded like a star wars tie fighter going past it's not exactly you know the the loud revving of, of you know a v10 of, of of when you know formula one was in his heyday but um it was just so amazing and lovely to see. And I think if anyone is dismissing electric racing, look again as an entry into formula, into any sort of motorsport PR, because you've got Extreme E, you've got um, the Rallycross 
going into electric. You've got all these series now who have seen Formula E and have seen its growth in five years and are now dipping their toes in it. And I think it's not at its peak at all. And I think rather than maybe getting into what we would call traditional fuel uh, motorsport, that could be a really good way to get in as more teams diversify um, and introduce an electric side. Um, that could be a really interesting way. And also gaming, you know, esports. Get into the mm -hmm. esports. We've now got massive crossovers because of the shut lockdown situation. And you've got esport commentators suddenly thrust in the limelight next to our track commentators commentating on, on e racing. And I think it's wonderful that these guys are getting there, hopefully, more than five minutes of glory. Um, and, and actually, they become names and, and get you know more jobs from it um so i would say you know don't dismiss digital platform racing and electric track racing as well because it's only going to get bigger yeah we've spoken about quite a lot of the interviews we have you know gone through what drivers are doing to keep the hand in to keep relevant and just to keep yeah the, the foot in really and yeah the e-series have been really relevant and growing and i think some of the conversation i've had with jack benyon a uh, motorsport journalist and um MS UK as well you know they are concerned that the license holders are going down so we do need to keep very relevant and if you're saying these e-championships are getting in touch with the fan base you know that again makes it relevant you need to have the fans there don't you yeah and you know so Formula E this is the middle of June and Formula E have just announced that they're going to finish their season with six races in nine days at the fantastic enclosed venue of Tempelhof the old uh, Art Deco um, airport in Berlin. So they can, if they want, I haven't read into this, so excuse me fans for, if you're listening and I'm wrong, but they could, the first two races, um, do one track layout. Couple of days later, re-jig, re, re give us some new um, corners, give us a couple of new straights, another two races. And then they've got another couple of days and then another two races. So they will have completed this season. Now, unfortunately, it is behind closed doors. No media were going. It is skeleton staff, um, which understandably health and safety has to come first right now. But they will be completing the season. And I think the fact that they stopped so early, they shut down early, they let the fans know immediately. Um, I'm not biased because I worked for a couple of teams. I haven't actually worked for Formula E per se, um, but I've worked within the environment. And I think as a communications group, they're fantastic. The way they, de deal is the wrong word, the way they interact and they communicate with their fans, they don't belittle the fact that their fans are important and they have a voice. And actually they really um, should be one of the first to know. Um, otherwise it just causes speculation and, um, you know, fake news as, yeah. you know, the, the famous, you know, term at the moment um, and bitterness. So the fact that they did shut down so quickly and they were criticised for doing so, but rightly so as, as it turned out. And now they're putting in place, um, you know, six races, to finish the season the drivers will be there they're all enclosed in a bubble because they haven't stretched it out over weeks and months it's in nine days so i think you know formula e has done a, a superb job um it will be one to watch and any electric racing going forward um would be a fantastic opportunity because it does 
um, in a lot of interaction with the fans and it does take you to e-racing and across the board and electric cars do you know what what is on track does reflect onto the road and road cars are having to produce manufacturers are having to produce i think it's five percent of their global outputs of cars have to be electric whether they're a high-end sports car or a small hatch um so what is learned and what this is shown by all these manufacturers now clamoring to become part of the electric revolution evolution i should probably say rather than revolution it's not quite maybe not quite a revolution yet but it's evolving and um i think you know it's only become going to become more relevant um, so yeah great thing to see. really exciting yeah having obviously working in the car dealership it's a uh... Yeah, because it's to meet cafe regulations. So we've got our first electric car arriving in a few weeks. So really excited about that. <laughs> Getting the little Bubba Honda that's got the little eyes. Yeah, the oh little E. God. Yeah, the Honda no, E. So I can't wait for it. It's going to be really good. So our first one's going to be charged yellow, apparently. Oh, don't. Taku got in it at Goodwood. So the whole <gasps> stand, Honda stand at Goodwood, for once wasn't their traditional um, motorsport um, show they had a couple of obviously their cars to show but it was all about the e uh is it called an e what's it it's the honda, honda e just honda, honda e. e and it was lovely because they didn't ask takuma to do any photos or anything about it but we both looked at it i was like oh my goodness from the front it almost looks like a li- like mickey mouse or something it's got such a cute <laughs> face and um Haku just said can i get in and everyone went of course you can. Can I take some photos? Of course you can. Well, you can imagine for the Japanese market, you know, Honda were just like, yay, this is amazing. So he got in with his race suit on and he's hanging out the E posing. Like, but we would, and, and of course he's like, I really want one. I went, no, but I really want one. Absolutely adorable little car. And I think that will do really well over here. I think it's, it's not pretending to be something it's not. It is a really cute, without putting it down i i just loved it i absolutely loved it and um i can't wait to see more of them and that was emma Bayer park unfortunately i didn't get a wrap up i had to stop recording because i had a time limit um but what a brilliant interview as ever great to hear from a different perspective and as you could hear through the interview she's just got so much knowledge and expertise and if anyone has been listening who wants to go down that route i hope you've picked up some good pointers But thank you so much for listening. Again, thank you for following me on my podcast journey. There is more to come. So if you want to just get in touch, let me know if there's any um, other types of um, sides to motorsport that you want to hear about. Get in touch and I'll try and get hold of uh, some of my contacts who I can interview um, and just add another dimension to the podcast. So follow me on my Instagram, Facebook or Twitter at Motorsport. Get in touch. I'd love to hear what you have to say. And thank you to my sponsors. Forest Experience, Riley School and Test Venue and thank you very much to Group Motorsport as well. Group Motorsport are car preparation and car storage facility and they've got a bar coming as I've mentioned and I can't wait for that to open. So thank you so much again and stay safe.